So it's Holy Week, the last week of Jesus of Nazareth's life, and this is Holy Monday, which you might say like, Holy Monday, you know, like the, the Batman TV series. This is the day that Jesus turns everything upside down. This is the day that Jesus has been plotting and imagining and scheming. This is what he came to Jerusalem for. He had, he had been predicting three things. One, that he was going to destroy the temple. Two, that he was going to be handed over to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And three, that he was going to be killed. Now, he didn't have a crystal ball. He he wasn't a psychic. Number two and three were the obvious consequences of number one. Because you go, Jack, with a temple, they're going to have you and you're going to end up dead. And that's exactly what happened. So, on Holy Monday, Jesus went on a suicide mission. He goes into the temple courts and he starts a near riot. One professor said it's it's not amazing that Jesus was killed for what he did. What's amazing was that Jesus lasted until Friday. Now, here's how it all went down. Jesus had stayed the night with his friends in Bethany. We think Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He gets up. At some point, he goes into the city. Now, how big the crowd is that goes with him, we're not sure, but there are enough of them to cause a big stir, and they go in, and they do just that. And for a brief little while on this Monday, they stop the commerce and the flow of activity in the largest religious building complex in the country. There are so many layers to this. I just want to touch on a few. Okay, first, the temple. Understand the purpose of it. So you're in an ancient world of superstition and competing gods for each nation, and all the other nations had their gods, and when they were winning, whenever they were winning wars and when they were on top and they were wealthy, you began to lose faith that your god was as good or could really do anything. So, like, Egypt or Babylon had their gods, and they were crushing you. And it was like, well, what happened with our god? Are our gods as strong as theirs? Or do they like us? Or did we screw up their relationship, and maybe they're mad at us? Or are they even there? So there's so much uncertainty and a need for faith in this ancient world. So the exodus happens and the the Jews are out there in the desert running for their lives and it was a comfort to them, like a concession for the people who needed faith out in the desert way back when they left Egypt and Moses, their leader, had said, okay, God told me we're going to build a little temple for him. It's like a tent, but it's going to have all the same things that the Egyptians have in their temple. It's going to have a courtyard. It's going to have an altar for sacrifices. We're going to have a special inner room like they did called the Holy of Holies, where God will meet us and forgive our sins so our God can comfort us and we don't have to worry if he's on our side. This placated the people. It made them feel feel better. It, it like gave them hope. And so all of those rules that you might have read or been familiar with in the books of Exodus and Leviticus in the Old Testament about how to do sacrifices, those were given in a culture who wanted and needed the comfort of rules and boundaries that let them feel connected to some sort of divine presence. See, like when your kids are growing up, 
don't try to tell your three-year-old to just love people. Like, how does that work, right? You have to give them boundaries, exact rules. And whenever you give them exact rules, that is a security blanket for them because humans intuitively need to know that they are in good standing with their authority figure, especially whenever they realize that they are completely dependent upon their authority figure. But then consciousness evolves, and, and then one day you grow up hopefully and you realize that the rules were never the point love was the point being fully alive and fully human was the point so the israelites a thousand years earlier when they're wandering in the desert their consciousness was still tribal it was like a toddler nation the the rules were their security blanket that allowed them to feel connected to the divine so when they settled in their new land the prophets among them would say things like, you know, guys, God doesn't need a temple. What, like, does the divine force behind the entire universe, is he, is he going to fit in a building? They would say things like this. And the temple and sacrifices were always to placate people's anxiety about whether they were in good standing with God. Now, Jesus comes along and starts telling them the most crazy thing. He's telling people in the region that he's healing and doing all of his miracles that God has forgiven their sins. He's healing people, which is the same thing as forgiving their sins. Those two were linked together. You may have been sick because God was mad at you. N.T. Wright says that him offering forgiveness of sins was like a dude walking around on the street handing out a driver's license. So he didn't have any sort of credentials to do this. It's like, where is this coming from? So all of these religious people are like, wait, 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 wait. You're not a priest. This isn't the temple. You can't just tell people that God's forgiven their sins. You've got to follow the rules. And Jesus is like, it's time to grow up. Don't you realize the point? The gods aren't angry. Jesus says things like, the sun rises on good people and the evil people. God sends the rain on all of us. Life can be random and no one is punishing you. The whole temple forgiveness sacrifice thing, it's a sham. We were supposed to grow up and we were supposed to realize that God was never mad at any of us and he never has been. See, Jesus is moving consciousness forward. He's evolving. He's the next step in the evolution of consciousness. Could it be possible that today, People would still think that you had to go through hoops or a religious system to get the favor of God. Now, this was a dangerous proposition. So let's talk about the temple at the time. By this time, the temple is a well-oiled machine. I mean, this is the most massive building in the country and the most expensive. So you know how this works, right? Like any system of people producing a product sort of devolves over time to be a bureaucracy, right? The temple's product was forgiveness because people have all these like, uh, what ifs and what, this is affecting that and so we need a rule for this and so this sort of bureaucracy develops around the temple the temple's product is forgiveness now to get it you had to sacrifice well you had to sacrifice your best it had to be an actual sacrifice to prove that you were sorry that was one of the rules and it made sense in its day but you brought your best animal but then there became rules so that you didn't skimp like well it needs to be pretty flawless but what if you're walking 80 miles to the temple with your sheep so like by the time you get there, no telling what might happen. Gets in a fight, gets scratched up, wolf bites his ear, all kinds of things. So these entrepreneurs move in and they're like, we'll sell you an approved clean sheep right here at the temple 
for a premium, of course, but after a while, it becomes a no-brainer, and you just pay for it. It's like that moment at Disney World, whenever you throw in the white flag, you're just like, whatever, give me the $25 burger, because, like, what are my other options? And then, like, to get them to even take your lamb, you, you would purchase this lamb at the temple. You would make sure that your temple taxes were paid, right? Because, like, these temple employees can't just work full-time for free, and if you owe back taxes, and so then you would have to pay all of your taxes. And it, like if you were way back on back taxes, good luck. And, and then all this tax money being brought in from all these different places. And you know the priests don't take pesos, right? I mean, especially Roman money because it has this image of Caesar on it that says the son of God on it. No way that we are going to deal with that in the temple. And so some other entrepreneurs, they set up these currency exchanges for a premium, of course. And you can see how this whole bureaucracy is created and favors the wealthy and the healthy who can afford to jump through those hoops completely unlike anything we'd create today right so it was despised by the poor at, at, at the time and so so much so that uh, some rebels one time attacked the temple and the first thing that they did was burn the records of debt which should be pretty telling to how the commoners felt about the temple shouldn't it so if you were poor, you loved this place. You had a certain amount of pride in it as your national emblem, but it had obviously become oppressive to you. And there were so many people spending so much of their livelihood trying to keep the gods from getting angry. And you could especially imagine if you had a lifelong illness or disease, how you would have felt like you had to give everything and they would have just taken it and it was just futile trying to get the gods' approval. So there's this stalemate. It's kind of like this. Um, say you're the CEO of a nonprofit that's providing medical supplies for people with polio, like wheelchairs and braces, and you've got all these employees, like 300 employees, and you're a hero, and you got trophies on the wall, and man, this nonprofit is like your pride and joy. And then the 1950s hit, and somebody is close to having a polio vaccine that works. Could it be possible, deep down inside, that you might actually not want the vaccine to work because it might destroy your livelihood. That, that this thing comes along and pulls the rug out from underneath all the good work you think you've been doing. Or maybe like you've spent the last 25 years working to build a dream home for your wife and you have saved and saved and saved and now you're midway through construction and you find out that she never really wanted this in the first place. Or maybe you're the CFO of a major fossil fuels company and you knew that studies had been saying all along that fossil fuels are harming the climate, but you're like, oh, there's no other options. And you build this great business and it's your pride and joy. And then all of a sudden, within a decade, these outsiders develop cleaner technologies that threaten to put you out of business. Is your perception of these technologies going to be skewed and you may not want them to succeed? See, like, once you build this giant system built on outdated assumptions that are no longer valid for the future, the managers of that system will fight like hell to protect it even from the truth. They will wear blinders, which is why Jesus calls them sons of hell. Now, not only was the temple like the forgiveness mart where you got forgiveness, it was also this place where you believe God actually came down and met and intersected physical space-time on the earth in his most raw form, whatever that was. They called it the house of God. Like, we've got God here, but 
but you can't get to him, right? Because there's walls around it. Now, the funny thing was, this same system had built walls around the place where God supposedly was. And then basically, if you looked at it this way, he was they were keeping outsiders on the outside. If you weren't a Jew, you couldn't go in. This was nationalism at its finest. So um, imagine like only Jewish males of a certain class and a certain health status could go so far in. And then other cultures and races and gender and classes were kept outside and could never never fully access this God. Could you imagine a country thinking that they thought they were the light of the world, but when others wanted to come experience and taste some of the goodness of it, they would build a wall to keep them out? It's a crazy thought. Now, even worse, the temple was the Jewish high seat of God. That was where they believed God sat on his throne. And it was the seat of collaboration where Caiaphas, the Jewish chief priest, like sort of the head Jewish dude, collaborated with the Romans who were his boss, essentially, who told him what he had to do, which is really interesting. When you realize that the Romans thought, those Roman soldiers would have thought that their emperor Octavian was the real chief priest. So they're like, we'll throw you a bone. We know this is your territory that y'all built this temple. So whatever. But this Jewish priesthood, is not only holding forgiveness over the heads of their own people as if they have a patent on God and like limiting access to God as if they have God in their, their little box they're building. They're also buckling and capitulating to the Romans every day as if they didn't really believe that their God was in charge. So they obviously, this had become about power, not the fact that you really thought your God was on the throne or in charge. So one of the great criticisms of the Jewish elites were that they were getting to be way too Roman. So Jesus comes in on his way to Jerusalem, and there's a fig tree, and it's not producing any fruit, and he curses it on his way to the temple, and he says, may you never produce fruit again. And the story goes that later they came back and it had just died overnight. But this this was not lost on people. Fruit was this age-old metaphor for Israel. And he's saying this whole system, this temple complex, isn't producing anything good. And what happens to the tree is about to happen to the temple. It's going to shrivel up, rot, and die. So he goes in with the crowds. This is what Jesus does. He grabs a whip. And this is when people secretly love Jesus because we can picture him like venting anger. He's the sheep patter on the head, you know, like, and now he's going to grab a whip and start going at it. And so people love this. But you know the animals that are for sale? He goes in with his whip and he starts clearing house. And he's not beating them to death. He's creating like an exodus of animals down the street as they're running away. These animals that had been victims of this whole system the whole time get to go free. And then, like Indiana Jones, he throws aside the whip. And in the chaos, he overturns the tables of the currency exchanges So think about this. There is free money going everywhere on the street. And then three, it says he stopped people from buying and selling and carrying merchandise through. It's like shutting down the registers on Black Friday. They they would have like temporarily, temporarily stopped the flow of commerce during the most busy time of the year. So remember that Zechariah 9 passage that I talked about in last episode? The one about Israel's king riding on a donkey Jesus? He would have had this memorized and knew it well, and so would the teachers there. And so they often taught using hints, like you should have known 
the verse before it and the verse after it. They called it Ramez. But, but it says this, in the verse right before the donkey verse, it had said this, but I will camp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I'm keeping watch. And there Jesus and his people stand in the way and say no more to this commerce. So for all these centuries, when the Jews would have read this passage, they would have read over it and thought, oh yeah, yeah, God will keep those oppressors out. Like the other countries, the other people, they're going to keep, we're going to keep them out of our temple. And Jesus here is showing him, showing them that oppression is born from within. Like never again will we oppress ourselves with our own evil. The line between good and evil doesn't run between us and them, but right down the middle of each one of us. Then Jesus isn't done. It says that he let in the children who are shouting in the temple court, Hosanna to the son of David. And he's, so he's not only casting people out, he's letting people in. He is symbolically sort of destroying the walls between classes. He is equalizing and creating justice. It says the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. So he's doing his healing right there as if to make a mockery and show up the system like, hey, I'll do this. I'll do this healing for free right here. Right. It's like the moment in the Wizard of Oz, whenever the Toto pulls back the curtain and you see that this great divine wizard has been a hoax the whole time. This whole temple complex ritual system has just been a thing that's began to be a, a, a bilking people for their money. Right. I know when you're a step ahead and, and you're wondering, is it possible that Christian churches wearing Jesus' name could have similar dy- dynamics? Uh, so I'll let you figure that one out. Um, for, for a moment, though, Jesus stands in the gap and he exposes truth and the shams and he stands up and he blows the whistle against a system that nobody wants to call out. Now, the worst for Jesus is it's, it's not like we need a reform or a new manager put in place or new processes or we got to refine this or make it more efficient. We just don't need this system anymore, period. John Dominic Crossan says that what Jesus does isn't cleanse the temple as it's commonly known as. He symbolically destroys it. He pronounces judgment on it. It's like a knife in the heart and he says, you're going to be destroyed. Not because he has a crystal ball, but because he knows So for the next two days, all of Jesus' disciples keep asking him, when's this thing really going to get destroyed? And this becomes a major talking point. But he pronounces judgment on it. He says, one day God's going to destroy this whole thing. The same God that destroys the evil nations around us is going to destroy the evil system within us. The rest of Mark and Matthew and Luke is filled with this long discussion of people wondering, when is this temple going to be destroyed? And Jesus tells them, and he was right. And I don't think it was because he was a psychic. I think it was because he was a prophet who spoke truth and he saw this whole thing imploding in on itself and he knew this couldn't last and he showed it on this Monday and it didn't. 70 AD, some 35 years later, this building was completely demolished in war and it's never been back since.